In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witness. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming. Everybody can see that moment where I just saw it. We're going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Hey guys, welcome back to the Anson's podcast. Oh my gosh. The world is such a crazy place to be. I wish that I someone from a few hundred years ago could be dropped into my morning and look around and they would start screaming and fill a backpack with non-perishables and run for the hills. I'd be like, where are you going, man? I think a few hundred years ago, if you got dropped in there, you'd run around screaming too, though. So it, it kind of goes both ways. <laughs> I wouldn't run around screaming. I'd be like curled up in a ball under a rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Blaine, today we're talking about negative space, and you're going to start us off. We're actually going to take this first in the pursuit of what that is in the world of art, because that's actually where the term comes from. So when I think of a painting, when I think of an image, photography, graphic design, I tend to think of uh, the big logo or the mountain range or whatever like the center focus of the image is. And I don't think I'm alone in that, but I think I'm, I know that I'm enough to know that I don't know very much about art, which is uh, sort of all that you accomplish by taking a single art class anywhere in like high school or college. So you go like, oh, oh, okay. I see why people actually go to modern art museums and um, stroke their chins and nod because I have no idea mostly what's going on. So uh, I'm prompting you because you actually, what we're getting a, a double major in this and have have a good enough background and intellect to take us into what is negative space when it comes to art. And, uh, and what am I referring to here? You have asked a very good question, Grasshopper. Negative space is so important. There's actually a really awesome story about not knowing what negative space is. And there was a mural. This is one of those stories that just also traffics in art circles. And I think it was in Italy. I'm going to have to look up the reference. But there was a mural that they wanted to put on display. And so they decided to remove the mural from the wall. But the modern, not versed in iconography, not versed in the style of the day, curators who came in famously cut out the figures and cut off all of the all of the sky reaching up to the top of the chapel where this thing had existed. And so they went, we think that the composition is this slim rectangle here at the bottom where the action is taking place. And the problem was, that was not the composition. What they didn't understand is that in order to actually 
engage and receive the impact of the peace, you needed this massive vaulted emptiness above it. Mm. So the negative spaces, you know, it's just all of the space between the figures in a composition. And I know that there are better artists listening who know a better definition, but you can do so much with negative space. You can actually teach people to draw by focusing their attention on negative space because too often, classically, when people learn to draw, they don't draw what they see, they draw what they think they see. And so training people to actually look at what's there and draw the car, look at what's there and draw the skeleton, not draw what they think a skeleton looks like, what they think a car looks like. That takes a lot of time and practice. But there's a shortcut and you can say, draw that bike, but don't draw a bike. Draw the two triangles that are made by the top tube, the seat post tube and the down tube, and then the chain stays and the seat post stays. Draw the two triangles and then draw all the triangles between the spokes and then draw the spaces between the cranks. And you'll actually draw a much better uh, bike by focusing on the negative space. This is also, if you've heard someone talk about a piece of art that needs to breathe more or that doesn't feel cramped, it's because of a good application of space between things. So it's basically 90% of the composition up to 99% of the composition is usually going to be some form of space between things, shapes that are made by two figures interacting. Okay, two things I want to chase in that, Blaine. The first is the thing you just said offhandedly, that people need to learn how to not draw what they think they see, but what they actually see. I feel like that's a whole podcast in and of itself. <laughs> Isn't it? You think you see something, but you actually aren't seeing that. You're seeing, if you would just pause and actually use your eyeballs and not use your emotions or your, your memories. <laughs> this is the big rabbit hole, but it's that we miss so much. And you know how an exercise in your body only maintains the muscle that it needs for the kinds of actions you rhythmically do? If you stop for two weeks, if you stop biking for two weeks, you can lose up to 50% of your biking muscle. So humans are hardcore minimalists at this point in creation. So we mostly have like, um, I don't know, carrying grocery muscles and... <laughs> I totally... I'm like, it's the lift the cow thing. I can hold my son indefinitely in my left arm, but in my right arm, I can hold him for like 30 seconds and then I got to shift him over. Because I, I can carry a kid, I can bend over and pick something up off the ground if I'm not carrying a kid, and that's about my, that's about my body's functional strength right now. <laughs> Sorry, that was a way of saying that humans are minimalist. The vision's the same way, where we bracket for the sake of convenience and so that we're not just dazzled by the world and ignore massive amounts, like ignore swaths of color. The famous example, have you and I talked recently about how humans have to be trained to see the blue parts of the color spectrum? Nope. Okay. Take me there. <laughs> There's people were reading <laughs> old Greek things 
And they noticed that the old Greeks, you know, that's not. How did the old Greeks, what did they do? <laughs> the old Greeks. Because um, there, like the, there are contemporary Greeks and they're very different. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people do still live in Greece. So um, you're talking about the writing of like the wine dark sea. And we would look at that and go, the sea is not red or purple. Exactly. And I would look at it and go, at night, it can kind of look like wine. But some of those descriptions are daytime landscapes, like in the Odyssey. And so you go, ah, you stroll down to the beautiful Caribbean under the hot sun to get into that red, red ocean. (laughs) It's like, what? Well, so of course, people wondered if this was just a, a literary trope. But then... When anthropologists were running wild, trying to just trying to interact with all of sort of the indigenous peoples of the world in the middle of the 20th century, they realized that many sort of indigenous, many tribal populations still don't see blue. And so they would like hold up color swatches. And it's usually not red. It's usually it looks the same as white. And so it'd be like, hold up, you know, three white swatches and a blue swatch, and they can't tell the difference. But then people can be trained. We have the ability to see blue. So people can be trained, look at the different swatches, and once they are trained to see it, they can't unsee it. Is this making anybody else wonder what color humanity is not seeing yet? It makes me wonder that all the time. We talked about this with Ailish one time, about how kids see rainbows around things and how Ailish will point at colors and go, what color is that? And I'm like, green. And then she'll point at something else and go, what color is that? I'm like, lighter green. And I'm like, I honestly don't know what you're seeing. I'm just seeing two green things. (laughs) But I could probably train myself to see more colors. We got here by way of going, art students, you have to do crazy things to hack people's brains to get their brains to stop bracketing. To actually see. Called blind contour drawing. You have to like have people draw all the details of an object they possibly can without lifting their pencil, without looking at their drawing. Because hmm. if you watch your drawing emerge, you're going to edit it to be more like the picture that you have in your head. So you just right. look away. And then you do, you do all, like kind of all kinds of things. You you all these monochromatic paintings and go you're going to do three versions of the same painting of a face, but in blues and then in yellows and then in reds. And when you do it that way and you're forced to render a face only in blues, you'll realize that you actually see tons of blue under the skin in people's faces. uh, So that when you paint a face, just whatever brownish, tannish color, it always looks wrong. And it's because you don't have kind of the glowing vascular blue underneath the skin. I think this is interesting because it is connecting to what you totally randomly started the podcast off with, but it's making me think of how I will stop smelling my own home. And we stopped hearing, there's a a railway line that's several miles away, but like we'll hear the train in the distance sometimes and I, I don't hear it anymore. Like my, our brains are wired to discover new and like get used to the environment that we're around and, and detect things that are for our survival, uh, abnormal, a, a new smell, a new sound, something that jumps out to us. But it does make me go through my life going, I, I, only when I come back to my home after a, a trip away for a week, do I smell it again. 
Only when somebody else points out the sound of a train in the distance do I go, oh yeah, that's I've, I've just not been hearing it because I hear it so often. So anyway, th- this, this rabbit trail wow. is super, super interesting. But okay, now I want to go back to the negative space. The other comment you made was that sometimes it's upwards of like 99% of a composition. So like how far back has the use of negative space gone in art and visual storytelling? Does this, does this go back? Wow. I feel years, like you may know the years. answer to this question. <laughs> I, I have a guess. <laughs> What's your guess? My guess is it goes all the way back. My yeah. guess is it goes back to like pictographs to like show the dif- the distance between spaces or size or you know, all that kind of stuff. But that's, that's just my guess. You are correct. <laughs> People use negative space, you know, when they're trying sort of intuitively. There's this other thing on this rabbit trail episode called embodied cognition in terms of we, that we understand ideas spatially. And so embodied cognition is the way that people use, tend to use the same kinds of gestures to convey the same kind of idea and that we think of ideas in space but the space inside of which we think of ideas has distances and is is, is shaped by like <laughs> the little man in my head just pulled the eject cord and, <laughs> and he's sailing away on a parachute when that sentence flipped over on itself. Try, try it again for me. We think of abstract ideas like good and evil in terms of space. And that's probably the right way to think of them. Yeah. Keep going. Like good <laughs> is over to the left and, and bad is over to the right. Not, not necessarily, not like everyone thinks of them in terms of one direction, but you know that would be thinking of them in terms of like opposing sides, polarity, and then mm-hmm. thinking that the more different they were, the further apart they would be. Mm. Point is, negative space. Not necessarily always because early art was a lot about like when it's just about representation you kind of cram the things together but to convey a thing accurately you're going to have a certain amount of negative space and the other thing is that art is very old which makes the question a little bit like caves of lascaux that's you know (laughs) those weren't made yesterday but as soon as people began to convey more complicated ideas negative space became everything. So, you know, the cave paintings in France at Lascaux, the classic bison on the wall, those aren't necessarily, most people think those aren't trying to convey a cosmic order. Probably they're not. Probably they're like, here's some bison, man, we love hunting those, but don't get stabbed by one because then your intestines fall out is kind of the takeaway of one of the paintings. That would be a good takeaway. (laughs) Has so many practical life lessons. <laughs> <laughs> really. What are they teaching kids in school these days? But if you fast forward to the kind of cosmic ordering art making of Mesopotamia, then, oh my gosh, the distance between things, the distance around things, uh, the spatial relationship between people, that becomes like everything. And man, I can just imagine the big trouble you you could get in if you were a mural artist in Egypt and you messed up the spatial relationship between the different figures of the Sheridan and the Pharaoh. And don't do that. Oh, yeah. When I think of like 
the hieroglyphic art and writing and storytelling style of ancient Egypt, it, it seems like it is precise in its spacing. I mean, we've got um, the history of nature and science up here in Denver that we'll go and visit, and they've got like their you know, Egyptian tomb one. And it, it's almost like looking at Moore's code. Like there's not, the spacing all feels very, very, very precise. So you say like, you hate to be the guy that did it wrong. You're like, yeah, I'm sure that guy existed. And... <laughs> But not for long. Not for long. No, other interesting one would be ancient poems and ancient songs like Beowulf. What comes to be named the Seishura in sort of Western poetry, the pause, is kind of everything that there's the understanding that interrupting the beat, the pacing of the storytelling, and then these dramatic pauses in lines, the negative space of storytelling is vital, not just to delivering a good story, but to conveying the, the essence of the story accurately. And I love the Beowulf death, death scene. And it does this just so masterfully where you're going along and you have this kind of rhythmic da-da-da-da-da-da-da language. And then you get to Beowulf's dying breath, you get to his last words in the poem, and they're composed in such a way that you have both kind of the faltering language of a guy who's trying to put something together, but you also, at the end of this poem, are meant to hear the end of an age, uh, the end of the Wagmundings, the great and highborn people fate swept away to their doom. And it's done by creating these pauses and interruptions even in the very cadence of the words. Mm. That makes me think of uh, a joke. Blaine, ask me, what, the, what is the key to comedy? Sam, what's the key to Timing. comedy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so this, this takes me to uh, maybe my last question before we, we shift the subject of this, and it, I feel like it's already been answered, but I want to like do the last nail, if you will. When it comes to filled space versus negative space, which is more powerful, or or, or are they the same? Oh, well, I think you would. <laughs> I would quote uh, Van Gogh's "Starry Night." to answer that question or any of his landscapes and, and ask the question, where's the negative space? Is there any negative space? Yeah, oh, certainly there is, but the boundary line of that concept is pushed so far to where, you know, because his paintings have pretty much uniform texture and the hues have a pretty much uniform intensity. So there's not a lot besides the, the movement of the shapes themselves and the size of them, the shapes themselves to create differences between foreground and background. But starry, starry night, the night sky is the negative space. Uh, I think it's actually just, it's just called one starry night. Yeah, it's just one starry. Starry, starry, night, night. We didn't do any kids' books, man. <laughs> but it's a negative space that has 
secondary and tertiary and quaternary negative spaces all built in. And you would kind of look at it and go, man, technically, in terms of the composition, that really is the background, the negative element. That painting is a very intense example. But in terms of interpreting art and engaging art, yeah, it is the negative spaces that create the controversies and the art battles and the angry letters sent back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> so a contested answer because they're they're both very powerful and like with Starry Night, the the almost absence, the the hard the harder it is to see one or the other. Um, perhaps the more powerful or compelling the the piece is. Is that is that a fair way of answering my own question? I think that is a fair way of answering your own question. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate you taking me on those, and this is just confirming the fact that I I know that I don't know very much about art, <laughs> and so uh, I hope that this half an hour has actually been like a really key piece of teeing up the second half of this conversation, which for me is taking the the language of negative space and applying it to our own stories and our life. And for some reason, I, I'm having like Taylor Swift song blank space playing in my head, which <laughs> for, you know, the two of you out there listening that don't love Taylor Swift. You would love Sam singing it. How's it go again? I don't remember that song. The song is essentially like... Um, I have a blank space in my in my love life, and I'm willing to write your name. We can't gloss over Taylor Swift's song, Blank Space, without talking about the brilliance and the utter despair of that song. Because, <laughs> you would notice that the song is full of blank spaces. Nice to mm. meet you. Where you been? I can show you. The whole thing is all of these little voids. And it's a catchy song that's about meaninglessness. It's, a, it's really amazing how good at being nihilistic that art is. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that why I, I'm thinking about that song is because I don't think most of us view our own stories as having negative space. My assumption is that we think our stories have filled things, what I would call positive space. And then we have blank spaces, things that just haven't been filled yet or never got filled or don't have anything there, but it's not, it's not contributing to the narrative. It's not contributing to you. And if the last half an hour has gone completely over your head, I would just say that isn't tr true, that the effect of negative space uh, is actually quite powerful, sometimes even more powerful than the filled space, the positive spaces. So that that's where like I don't know if if that assumption is correct, but it's it's it is my assumption that we kind of go through our life with like this um, oblivious hip swagger, going like, oh no, I don't have negative space unless it's very obvious. I just have like there's just some empty spots. There's some things that never happened, and I'm gonna like just shove that swaggering imaginary version of myself into the deep end of <laughs> an imaginary pool and go, okay. There are things called adverse childhood experiences. They get called ace or aces. And ace in the hole. 
exactly. And these are things that are key moments and experiences in our childhood that uh, are huge indicators for health and wellness and happiness and trauma later in life. And what I think is really interesting about them is that a big category of that is abuse and another big category is neglect and missing parents. So psychologists have identified the impact of negative space in this way because they go, if you experienced positive space filling, though in this case positive um, is going to feel like the wrong word, but a presence of something in the case of harm, it is as impactful as a negative space harm through neglect and through a parent being gone, a divorce, a parent being in jail. Those things get listed right next to each other in this category of an adverse childhood experience that would be this flag. And like you can take a, a quiz and get scored on this. And depending on your score, which can be very, very low, it's still uh, a there's still red flags. Like a one is a red flag. A two, having three of these things is um, profoundly uh, concerning and, and we require care. And so that's why I like, to, I'm pushing the swaggering person into the deep end going, if you think that you have a blank space and not a negative space and, and that they don't actually have this uh, weight and impact on you, I'm going to go, um, Yes, they do, because here's here's the deep end of the pool where neglect, absence of things, uh, they actually have extreme power and get listed right up against violence and harm. So I was thinking about this conversation, Blaine, and we had, uh, we'll you know, hide the identities, but we were at an event and got to hang out with uh, another pair of brothers. And they know about the story, obviously, but we were talking about their childhood and their father and uh, who, who's a good man who had never actually harmed, um, who was around, but who never spoke words of affection or affirmation, who never hugged, who never said, I love you, but was never harmful. And I feel like I've had this conversation so many times, but I remember that because um, this particular one, because you were there and I've since had some follow-ups on it. I remember having this conversation going, you guys, I think it actually would have been more helpful if your father hadn't been there at all than if he was there and didn't say those things. And and it, sort of, it took them back because who would, who would wish for that scenario? But I, I kind of was trying to double down on the idea that there in that in this case, his presence without offering those things, he was there, but it was also contributing to these negative gaps in things that they actually needed was causing much more pain and much more fragmentation and a lack of initiation that they really needed. And they assumed it didn't matter because he was around. And so it got missed. In, in the ways that negative space can be because you can focus on on the big pieces. And uh, I'm grateful to say that in the follow-up, they actually appreciated this pushback of like, oh, I never thought about it like that. Do you remember this conversation? I do remember this conversation. 
Yeah, without any warning, people are just in their car right now <laughs> getting thrust into their pain. We've got Anson's Meta Dragon, uh, but clearly we're going to need uh, some kind of. Anson's Pull Over the Car Dragon. <laughs> their uh, masterpiece. <laughs> it's like therapy and masterpiece put together. But to go, okay, whoa. You were talking about absences and their formative effect. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to stop and go, you named neglect, and especially in the case of that story, a father who was like a presence, but you really had to identify as that's an absence. Mm-hmm. The alarming thing is that there are, I'm guessing there are a lot of things that a person needs that not getting is something to pay attention to. Like, you totally. talk about there are things that you, childhood absences, curious in your therapy world, is what else is on that short list? Parent, oh. Parenting neglect. Yeah. Oh. Um, the, the idea of attachment, we've, we've touched on also recently. Um, but your sense of self, your sense of morality, your sense of worth, um, these these pretty key grounding identity pieces come at a very young age from the world around you. And if the world around you is giving you the message that, uh, A, you don't matter, or we don't have time for those things, or um, you're only seen in certain ways, that's where a lot of the wild at heart, early um, metaphors of of wounding and posing um, come from because we found where you, we, we find where we get seen and then we set up shop there, right? Like that's, that's where the whole conversation around like the poser hides the wounding. Um, you find where you can get attachment, where you can get any of those needs met and then you become that person. You just, you're like, okay, great. Like I'm, I'm the achiever or I'm the academic or I'm the, baseball player or I'm the businessman or whatever. So I would identify that um, the, the key places as we think of mother and father that might not be met and that we do need, there is that uh, attachment and affection from mother and there are words and presence and initiation from father, but both of them combine into this family unit that is meant to give you identity, give you worth, give you self, give you these places that I go like, if you're missing some of those things, that's not a small deal. That's not a blank space. That's not a, oh, I just didn't get those. I would say, look back at the ways that that affects art. If you can't look at the ways that affects your own story and go, the absence of something is as impactful as the presence of something, sometimes more so. That's a Woof. painful <laughs> idea, probably. And I do want to explore that a little bit. One of the things that I appreciate that Dan Ellinger talks about as we go into our own stories is curiosity. And what I like the, I like the word curiosity so much because it isn't suspicion. Curiosity doesn't tell me that you're investigating. Curiosity has like this open-handed posture to it rather than like a... I don't know, like a bloodhound trying to trying to find a fox. Like you just 
are able to look in and and almost like that that art exercise you were talking about like not, don't look so much at what you're drawing actually learn to look at what's around you and trace those edges but huge pieces of trauma for instance our brains will forget and I'll I'll use an example that's that's uh, sort of helpful it's like the bike crash um if you're riding a bike and you have a bee fly in your ear <laughs> You have a bee. Okay, this is an actual example that happened to me. I'm riding my road bike. There's a little bit of a gravel section. A horsefly or the world's biggest bumblebee flew into my ear, and I couldn't stop myself from reaching up quickly to try and get it out. And a quick movement on gravel with a road bike caused me to— not, Yeah, recipe for disaster. It, it was a recipe for ending up um, on my side, and I did. And I cannot— remember the actual crash like that happened but the the crash itself is gone my my mind has sort of like deleted that memory uh there's also people on this running path so there's this interesting like communal aspect of shame and there's I, i in the in the notes i think we'll include this piece here on just how how a trauma, even a small scale like that one, can can impact four different types of memory. There's semantic, episodic, emotional, and procedural. And in order, that is knowing what a bicycle is, that's semantic. Episodic is the actual event of the crash. Emotional would be those places of shame, anxiety, fear. And procedural would be like knowing how to do something without thinking about it. You know, like say riding a bike. And not every single one of those would be lost, but some of them might be. So in my case, the episode of the crash was just my gone. And for a while, the seeing of the bike would trigger the emotional memory of the shame of crashing and feeling foolish and even the pain in my body. Like I would just look at my bike and go, oh, I don't actually want to get on it for a while. So if a small scale thing like a bike crash, has a potential to affect all these different areas, the hippocampus, the amygdala, um, temporal lobe. Like We've learned to be really curious in our own stories because you will forget trauma. You will forget higher levels of trauma. And I would also go like, this, this is why it's not a witch hunt. This is why it's curiosity. Like I don't really remember much of what it was like to be five. You know, I'm I'm 32 at the moment of this recording, and as I think back, like, I don't know, five was uh, kindergarten? I can I think I can remember, like, a little bit of it, but maybe I'm, I'm thinking of second grade and I'm projecting it onto it. Like, I, I don't actually remember it that much. That doesn't necessarily mean that when I was five, I experienced a ton of trauma. But I would also say it doesn't not mean that. That's why it's not a witch hunt, but it's curiosity to go, okay, well, sit with it and and walk me into some of those memories. Walk walk me into what it was like to be Sam in the house you were in and in those spaces. And I think what might be helpful for some people is thinking of someone else's story and hearing like the disconnect has been really helpful for me. Where I've sat with people who had really horrible childhoods, abuse, separated parents, violence between siblings, like it, you name it. Um, it was not good. 
and and that being like the worst euphemism possible. And that same person could kind of go, yeah, I didn't have that. I mean, it was a bad, it was a bad space, but you know, it, it was okay. I like, I'm fine. And you go like, oh, okay, like there are serious disconnects and and ways that for our own well being and survival, our our body and mind has done like a really really good job of trying to take care of us. And that negative space, those gaps, those those places where you go into and there might be nothing there. Um, that that's that's where I throw this whole conversation of negative space at and go, I would be really curious and I would um, almost be a little bit hesitant naming that like it, it potentially has some serious influence and power on your story in the ways that the negative space in art does and the negative space in a, in a movement of, of stars and clouds swirling around the sky has serious impact on a piece. Woof. So many things to say. I want to call attention to what you were saying at the end. And go, we can push this negative space metaphor pretty far because mm-hmm. there are there are different kinds and there are different ways of using it. And we're keying in right now on the one that's the void. And there are, I think, so like uh, starts, sculptures of people are the most surrounded by a void representations of humanity ever. They're the worst. Uh, But it's like the negative space around these shapes is so empty, it's incredible. And one thing I would say is that, man, parenting, when you parent, you sometimes, if you're me, read parenting books. When you read parenting books, you encounter all of these developmental milestones and core needs that make you really ask questions about yourself. Mm -hmm. And even something as kind of sterile as, uh, it's crazy, the the CDC has a developmental milestone checklist that for up to four years that is interesting homework. I, I would go, hey guys, go look at that. Ignore the things that the kid is supposed to do and then key in on the sections, which are like every other page on ways to support your six-month-old, your nine-month-old, your one-year-old, your two-year-old, your three-year-old. And a lot of things are listed that are things that I would consider exceptional. And it's like when the, I think it's when it's one-year-old, it goes, Ways to support your child. As they begin to explore, make sure that you stay close to them so they have a sense, so they have confidence that you will be near. And I'm like, that, what? That's a thing? Uh, And then by three years old, it's talking about the kinds of emotional words and the kinds of description, emotional descriptions of experiences that a three-year-old is capable of using and ways to have conversations about emotions. This would be if you are curious, to use your and all of the therapist's word, about uh, not witch hunting, but to go, what are some of the ways that uh, negative spaces in the example, in the case of a void, 
mm-hmm. are actually shaping my ability to relate with other people, my ability to relate with God, my reaction to things. Go check out a developmental milestones checklist <laughs> and then ask about your own story and go, mm. wow, uh, you know, by the t- here's, here's some things for your three-year-old. Uh, read to your child every day. Hold your child's hand going up and down stairs and over shifting terrain so they can learn proprioception, which you learn while holding on to other people. A uh, little bit more of the attachment of movement. Play outside. Let's jump up. Let's jump up to four. Take time to answer your child's why questions. If you don't know the answer, say, I don't know, or help your child find the answer in a book on the internet from another adult. <laughs> <laughs> when you read with your child, ask her to tell you what happened as you go. <laughs> so you're beginning with these childhood ones because I, I think there's going to be people listening going, oh, right, I never got the reading. I never got the affection. I never got the attention, even at that age. Or I never got even just emotion feeling words. Of, of that hand being held into a new shift like that that's what I needed when I was graduating from college as there was a new shift and it felt like I was walking onto an escalator that I'd never been on before and it was what's going to be stable what's here what's not I think there's people listening going oh I can think of like the really big ones that I never got and I really want to get and you know particularly around this ministry they end up being things like um, initiation um, words of affection, words of identity. Um, and those are all true. And those are all big. And we've been chasing after the ways that the father does still bring those. But I think part of me wants to use this podcast. If you've made it this far and if you are kind of scratching your head going like, well, I don't really know. I would say it's it's maybe apply this to some of the areas where you are assuming that what was missing is fine. In the case, back to that conversation we had of um, a father who was present, but physical affection just wasn't there and therefore you don't really need it. But it, it, I would say it's also maybe interesting that you crave physical touch from those around you. Like there's going to be th- ways that you actually need these things and this negative space impact. It's, it's a big idea. It's a big conversation. Um, I love going at it through the lens of art because we can all kind of sit back and be like, oh yeah, interesting. Storytelling, beauty, art, uh, narrative. This goes back to the beginning of civilization and and then even further back. This goes back to the first people trying to communicate with each other. They go like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that has serious implications for you. That has serious implications for your story and yourself. Um, and I, as we were beginning this conversation, I actually wanted to land this episode by reading Isaiah 61. And the reason being, I think there's a potential for this conversation to be evoking some places in you that feel desolated, that feel that need, and it feels impossible to meet. And I would say to those places, we serve a God who explicitly wants to come for those places and wants to change the narrative there, wants to fill those negative spaces. 
So, Blaine, if you're okay with it, I'd like to read Isaiah 61. Take it away. Okay. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory, you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. 